We were once dead, but now we're alive because of Jesus Christ. And that death we're going to be speaking about today that held us in in bondage and kept us from communicating with you. It kept us from being in the know of what you and your heart is wanting to do. And we recognize, God, that if it wasn't for your love, none of this would have ever happened. Truly, death was arrested. It was taken, what it, what it could do to us was taken from us by you and you alone. And so we give you praise, we give you glory, we give you honor for the story, the narrative of redemption that is now ours. Not by anything that we can boast about, but we can boast in you. And so we boast in you now as Yahweh, the great I am, the creator God, the one and only, and Jesus you being his son, who then out of obedience to the father came down, lived a life that was modeling for us what was intended from the beginning. And then you became obedient to death, even death on the cross. And then by that death and your resurrection, life comes to those you foreordained. And so we say thank you and we praise you. And now as we go into the word by which you wrote, by your Holy Spirit as he guided Paul, may you use this text today to give life to us as we go out throughout our days. Thank you, Jesus, and it's in your name I pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Man, I love that song. We did that song the first time back in Easter about three or four years ago, and, uh, and it's still like one of my favorites. It speaks to the, the beautiful good news that we have in Jesus Christ. And so I, if you're new here this morning, we just want you to feel welcome here. We're going to be talking about the things that God put upon the heart of the Apostle Paul when he was writing to a church in Ephesus. And, uh, and there is a lot of rich things that we can glean from this that can help us today. We chose this text uh, for this series uh, back, basically back in January. And what we were discerning is that what Ephesians talks about is the unity of not only the triune God, the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit, but the unity of the church and that we're given unity with each other. In fact, Jesus prayed in John chapter 17. He, he prayed for those who would believe later. And, and we're the later people. And so he prayed for us. And what he prayed was, Lord, may they be one as we are one. So that the world would know that we are truly one with each other. So the evidence to the world that God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one, the evidence of that truth is on display by the miraculous work done in a group of people making them one. And Ephesians talks about that, that oneness as a church. And then we're given this beautiful message of the gospel that is a single mission given to us all. One mission that literally each of us that have been given this beautiful gift of Jesus Christ and the redemptive work that he does in us, it is now an opportunity to advocate, to minister on behalf of that message to others who need him. 
You know, so in the scriptures, it talks about that the mission of the church is to go into all the world, making disciples, followers of Jesus Christ, and then baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then to teach all that he has taught us. That is the mission of the church. It's not given just to the pastors. It's given to the entirety of the church. And that is good because there are people in your life I will never be able to talk to, but you can. There are people that are unique to you in your sphere of influence, or as the ancient Greeks would say, your oikos, that relational world, is unique to you, that you have an opportunity to sow seeds of the gospel, to be that light to people who might be in your relational world that don't know Jesus or know him and need to be encouraged in him. And so that's our oneness and mission that we have as a church. And so we're going to dive into the text today. We're going to be in the book of Ephesians chapter Two, and we're going to start with the first seven verses. Now, while these Bibles are being handed out, if you don't have one, um, last week we, were, we concluded chapter one, uh, and Dan Hollingsworth, one of our missionaries, was the communicator and speaker last week. And, you know, he shared from a unique perspective of having come from Europe uh, and coming here for, for a couple weddings and, and uh, to see people he hasn't seen in a long time. And Speaking from a unique perspective into what's happening here in America, you know, he said, because the text at the end of chapter one is written by Paul to the church of Ephesus, but written from afar, and he praised them, he encouraged them, but he gave them words of wisdom to speak into the church. So did Dan do that last week when he said this. He says, I want you to know that we are praying as a church in Spain, we are praying that the American church, but specifically LAFC, will not become distracted. He shared that last week, and I was like, that hit me to the core. It's like, please keep praying that, because the temptation to go unto other is there constantly. But we want to stay to speaking to that which is, comes from God and not from the whims of mankind. We get enough of that every day of the week. So we can certainly set aside these uh, 90 minutes or so uh, for the sake, uh, 75 minutes, some of you are like, oh, crud, we're going to be late <laughs> to lunch. I, 75 minutes. Um, but uh, these next 75 minutes, we're going to stick to the gospel. You know, we, we are a church that are committed to that. And so in Ephesians chapter 1, at the end of it, Paul prayed for that church saying that, you know, stick to the root of the gospel. Make sure that you're talking about Jesus. That's who changes lives. And Lord willing, we'll continue to follow his lead and do so here as a church. So with that in mind, let's read Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, and we'll go to verse 7. It says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us who lived among them at one time, gratifying uh, the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. 
And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So he begins in this chapter with this statement, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. In other words, he's speaking to a church who in past tense used to be dead in their transgressions and sins. And that transgression term and sin term, the differentiation between them is transgressions is speaking to that which is like false steps or a stumbling of, of nature. So a constant stumbling of nature. And, and then sins being missing the mark not hitting the standard of that which God intends. And so the combination of the two is a person who is missing the mark by constantly, constantly stumbling and not stepping where they should. So in this expression, you get the understanding that there is a person who literally cannot think, cannot communicate, cannot operate because they are dead due to their transgressions and sins. And the combination of these two suggests absolute failure. Absolute failure to be in God's favor. So having said those things about this verse one, we can make this statement and say it with absolute certainty that without Christ in your life, you are dead to God. I can say that with absolute certainty that there was a time in my life when I was not in walking with Christ and he was not in my life that I was dead to God. So what does it mean to be dead to someone or dead to God? You know, it's, it's an interesting experience and, and when I was looking up what does it mean, this death, you know, it's talking about a spiritual death because clearly people are walking the face of the earth, they're alive. But in regards to the relationship with God, they're dead towards God. And the best way I can explain that is, have you not had a family member that you are closely related to, that you haven't talked to in years? And it's not because of just distance. It's because of a choice. They've chosen to separate from the family. I have people in my family that I'm related to that are Yes, close in relation, first cousins that I have not seen in 30 years. And it's by a choice. They've chosen to separate from the family. And they're being counseled, they're being told, this is what you should do. And let me tell you, anytime those names come up, it's not in judgment, but rather, I wish we had relationship with them. I wish we knew where they were at. I wish they knew our heart that we want them to be a part of this family. I mean, in, in my case, these, these distant relatives but are yet close relatives don't even probably know I live in Pennsylvania. They may not even know I'm a pastor. That's how strange and dead we are to each other. A person who is dead to God has no relationship with him is dead to him. There's no communication. There's no understanding of the person who is dead to a living God. They're completely cut off, incapable 
of relationship. Because dead people cannot communicate with one they're dead to. Somebody that might be in this room or maybe people you know might know this even more personally than just an extended family member that's disconnected from the family. Some people I've met have been shunned by their families just by choosing to join a different church than perhaps a strict Mennonite church or an Amish congregation. That shunning is very holistic because it's not just a shunning from the church. It means you no longer can sit at the table with your parents. You can come into the room, but you must sit at a different table. You can no longer communicate freely with those who are a part of the church. There is permission that must be sought. You're treated as if you have some sort of disease. You're, you're, those who are shunning you are being counseled to stay distant from you lest they become like you. And as a result, hurt, pain, discouragement, anger resides on both sides. Being shunned and being the shunner comes with pain. So to be dead to someone is not something that is of feel-good measure. But yet all those who have not come into a relationship with Jesus Christ are exactly that. They are dead to God. By a choice of sin and transgressions, that death has come. It's something we have earned. It's a choosing of relationship where we are dead to the creator God but alive to other things. Verses two and three is fascinating because it speaks again. He's saying, you used to be this because he's talking to a group of people that now have a relationship with Jesus Christ. So you used to be dead in your transgressions and sin and it was an absolute state and condition between you and God. But remember also that when you were dead, what you looked like and how you behaved. So verses two and three basically give a profile of what a dead person looks like. So here we go, verse two. So we're dead in your transgressions and sin. So you used to live in such a way when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit then who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us who used to live among them the dead people, used to gratify the cravings of our flesh and also followed our own desires and thoughts. So I will make this statement, and it's not much of a declaration in light of this text, but it's true. Spiritually dead people look a lot alike. They try to be unique and different but yet, they're operating under the same set of values and motives. So as a result, in the end of the day, they look a lot alike because they follow the same patterns. Well, how should I live? Well, what's the prevailing idea? Live in such a way. We get a little bit, you know, in, in verse 2 that, yes, they're, they're living according to a pattern of this world, but a pattern that was defined and led out by the kingdom of, or the ruler of this heir, which is another way of saying Satan himself. Satan has created a design for living that he has modeled well himself 
And he's put that template out there for the world to conform to it, to that template. And many people, they might follow that template intentionally knowing they're following after the devil. Others, they have no idea that they're actually being led. They think they're leading themselves, but they've actually bought into the deceiver's way of doing things. And so there is a leader over their lives and they're following his spirit towards that of disobedience. Now, when I think, when you say, what do you mean following after knowingly a leader, whereas some do not? If you came by way of 772 from Akron, Brownstown, Ephrata, or through Rossville, how many of you came to church that way today? All right, so you came from down the hill. The last place of a spiritual household you pass before getting to LEFC is a place that flashes a sign saying, spiritual palm reading, crystals here. It's a place of tarot cards being used. It is a place of knowing pursuit of a spiritual darkness and leader, and they know they are doing so. So there are people like that that you're just like, why would you ever go to someplace like that? There are people that they know that there's power in the dark side, if you will. They know there's power there and they're, they're, appealed to it, they're appealing to it and, and they enjoy experiencing it. Others have no idea that they're right in the same living room. They think they're in charge of their lives, not realizing they have actually fallen right into the trap and they're being led to that which is destruction. So in this, we see that in verse three, it speaks to and defining what the patterns of this world actually are like. So in verse three, it says, all of us used to live among these dead people at one time. And what we did when we were with all the dead people is we gratified ourselves the, the, through the cravings of our flesh. So self-gratification is like the number one value of the world. I mean, think about the appeal that happened in the garden. So we know that heaven split when the Satan and his demons left, and it says that because he wanted to be like God. So he fell. And what did he do when he tempted Adam and Eve? He appealed to them and says, God doesn't want you to eat of that tree because you'll become like him and knowing that which is good and evil. And so he appealed to them to become like God or to get that which is different, to gratify themselves. So the number one value of somebody who is in the world that is dead towards God is please yourself. Which is why I do not say the phrase, all I want is for you to be happy. That is right out of the playbook. That is right out of the playbook of the enemy. Is that all you should ever want is to be happy. Now, don't get me wrong. I like to be happy. I want a happy day. I come to church hoping that it will still be happy at the end of it sometimes. Trust me, we all want to be happy. It's not a bad desire. But if happiness is the end game, as it is in our culture, all we want is for you to be happy, even if that means choosing strange things that we know might harm you in the end, you're gonna be happy in the pursuit, so therefore, I affirm you. That is right out of the playbook of Satan. 
It's right out of the playbook. Self-gratification. Make sure you're happy. That is of the highest value. And it forsakes anything else that might be of consideration to weigh against that pursuit of happiness that might be extremely flawed. Another thing he says in the text, again, giving a template of what the ruler of this era has written as the playbook that the world should live by is not only the self-gratification, but who you should follow. Look at the end of verse three. And, and we used to follow what? The desires and thoughts of our flesh. So if we were to describe what is Satan tempting us with, what is the pursuit or patterns of the world that is common regardless of culture, whether it's Asia or Australia or Europe or Africa or South America, North America, and I don't know if anybody lives on Antarctica, but anyway... The point is, no matter where you go and wherever humanity goes, the common values you will see is please yourself and rule yourself. Those are the top things that you can tell. When somebody is operating by the flesh and somebody is operating by the prince of this world, even those who might be in the kingdom of God can fall prey to Satan's trap that we will avoid doing that which is right for the sake of pleasing ourselves. And we'll avoid doing what is best by saying, no, I am in control of my own destiny. You see, there is commonality in the world that when you can see that somebody is all about their own personal happiness and somebody's fighting for, it's all about my rights and my decision. I am my own authority. One of the most fearful things for me as I look at society, what's going on now, is that even in the Christian church, this idea that authority is bad is going to be an undoing of many people's lives. It says very clearly throughout scripture, authority is given as a means of a giving freedom. Yes, we have authority figures who have violated the trust of those they have authority over, but that should not cause us as believers to become anti-authoritarian in our way in pursuit of engaging society. We have to be careful with this because that is right out of the script of, again, Satan's playbook. Make sure you are the one in authority. Think what he did to empower Adam and Eve in the moment. He says, God doesn't want you to take of that because you'll become like him and what he knows. So if you take of this fruit, now you will know and you can be in control. So be careful when you choose rebellion. Be careful when you choose disobedience to authority because you may not be given license by God to do so. Even if you think that authority figure is flawed. We see regularly throughout scripture that we're to honor emperors, we're to honor leaders as they are people assigned by God as one who must give an account. And this is not a message I'm gonna get a lot of amens from. But here's the point. Satan very much enjoys the context we're currently in. He enjoys it very much. Because don't just think for a moment that because we're not enjoying or appreciating how various governors or presidents might be behaving or that various local officials might be behaving, it's crept into the church too. As we have fallen pastors, 
We have fallen leaders. We know there are times when, the, when people in authority in the church have not handled it well. But that does not mean that the narrative becomes we choose no one else but ourselves to choose what's right for us. That is not a template that comes from Scripture. We are people that need authority over us. Why? Because we're sheep that are prone to straying. Every one of us. Nobody's escaping from that, me included. I need authority over me to avoid going astray. And so when we see here what is common in the nature of those who are dead to God is they love to please themselves and they will defy authority at all costs so that they can be in charge of their own lives. That is the, the true nature of someone who is dead in their transgressions of sin. And as it says at the end of verse 3, are by nature deserving of wrath. By the very nature of ourselves, we therefore are deserving of whatever wrath God would give us, whatever judgment God would have over us. We deserve it because of our transgressions and our sins. Anybody here has to know that these were character traits of us before Christ. If not, you're in denial of the very nature of yourself. Yes, there were times when I could see very clearly before Christ, those things were what led me. And there are times that, yes, even now that Christ is in me, that I'm tempted to go back and be the leader of myself and the gratifier of myself. That temptation still exists, but I keep coming back to Jesus where there is grace. Let's continue on. One of the things I, I loved about what Dan said last week is that currently in the Spanish church, which by the way, has been way more oppressed as a church than churches here in America. Even the most restrictive states in America cannot hold a candle to the restrictions that have been put upon the church in Spain. They have been told basically for the last year and a half, you cannot meet. They have been in a very restrictive state. Now, they've started having small meetings, but it was, they can't come out of district to those meetings. So imagine here, if you were not allowed to leave effort and come to Lidditz. Imagine if you couldn't go from Mannheim Central to Mannheim Township. That's what they're dealing with there. And so the church got separated and, and that's what they've had to deal with for a long period of time. And so they're dealing with those things. But you know what they have found encouragement in? Dan has told me that many of the leaders of that church have been watching the live streams here at LAFC. And they've been encouraged. And they've been praying that we would not become distracted. But they've also had some things where God has been encouraging them from the word of God. And they've got this mantra called, but God. When they see something that makes them angry, they say, but God. When they see something that makes them discouraged, then they'll say, but God. When they see something that is confusing and there's seemingly no answers, they'll say, but God. They get that from texts like today, where it says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. But verse four says, but because of the great love because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. But God, you were dead. You were gratifying your own selfish nature and your own flesh. You were, you were basically choosing to be the leader of your own soul. And you were continuing to be in defiance to God. And you were dead to God. But yet, God, in spite of you being dead to him, 
and communication, a lack of communication between you and him, an ability to not be able to make decisions for yourself that would be of good nature because you're dead. But God, because of his love and richness and mercy, made us alive in Christ. Now that's worthy of saying amen. Oh man, only half of the room over here, they got me. So when we're in this text, he says, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive in Christ. Now why there does he say rich in mercy? Well, if you understand the difference between mercy and grace, mercy being basically not receiving what we are, deserve. So in other words, if we deserve wrath, then God not giving us his wrath would be a merciful act on his part. So when he ends verse three by saying, because of our nature being self-gratifying and we're our own leaders and we're defiant of any kind of authority, it says by nature we deserved wrath. But God, because of his love and that he was rich in mercy. In other words, he has so much mercy that he's willing to withhold his wrath because he plans to make us alive in Christ. So he's rich in mercy and his love is his motivation. Think about why God did what God did. John chapter three, verse 16. What was his motive? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So it was the love of God that enabled this whole storyline to happen. So what does this mean? It means that the love of God is what changed the narrative. Up until this moment, we're simply dead to God. We're not alive. We're dead to him. He created us in his image. He created us for a relationship with him. But because of our sins and because of our nature, we were dead to him. But that wasn't going to be the end of the story. He changed the narrative because God is rich in mercy. So his love drove him to the place where he then created a way where those who were dead to him would become alive to him. So let's continue on in the text. Verse 5. So yes, because of his rich in mercy, he made us alive in Christ, that even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. So even when we were dead, God showed love to us. Now, we've buried a lot of people in the last few years at our cemetery called Witness Park. Many good people are buried there, but they have no voice in the present. We have memory of them. We can speak of them well, but their life here on this earth is finished until the final resurrection for those who are in Christ. But in that journey, they cannot speak for themselves now. The decisions they made are the decisions they made. In the same way, a dead person to Christ cannot speak up for themselves. A dead person to God cannot do anything for themselves to be made right before God. In fact, a dead person cannot speak at all. So, when it says here that God, because of his love and because he was rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, he did this even when you were completely dead, incapable of communication or action on your behalf to make yourself right before God. God made you alive. So God made alive those who could not respond as dead people. 
Romans 5.8 says this, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still yet sinners. Not that we had gotten ourselves clean enough for God to want to die for us. No, we were dead to him, incapable of any kind of righteous acts, and he chose then to change your story. And he made you alive. This was an undeserved act. So God demonstrates love for us in this, that while we were still sinning and holding our fists up to God, Christ showed love for us and God gave us the means to become alive. And so in this context, we have even Jesus' own words and explaining this whole same thing with Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a religious leader who was well-studied in the scriptures and was not understanding all that Jesus was saying. And so he came to Jesus at nighttime so they wouldn't be seen, and he asked Jesus, okay, what gives? How can one be saved as you speak of? How can one be saved? And Jesus says, you must be born again. That seemed like the words of a lunatic. What do you mean, be born again, he says. Nicodemus is like, well, do I need to go back into my mother's womb to be born? And Jesus says, no, these things are done by God. Why? Because infants cannot make themselves be born, right? Infants come about by the choice of another. Infants are, are, are there because there is a love mechanism that created the opportunity, and I'm trying to keep this ungraphic, but they, they, it's created out of love and therefore we get child. In the same way is true. A child cannot be made spiritual that which they are already dead. They cannot go from a dead position and make themselves alive spiritually. So therefore, there needs to be a choice, a decision by the maker. The maker being God. And so Jesus says in his explanation that yes, you must be born again and that being born again is accomplished by the Father God's love and ultimately by the work I'm about to do in being here. Because it was Jesus that said in verse 16, after he said this, that the Father so loved the world that he sent me. That he sent me and I'm going to die for you. And so this text to say that you were dead in your transgressions and Christ made you alive while you were dead is, is then confounding to the mind because it's like a dead person cannot will for themselves and God knows that that's why in Romans chapter 6 verse 23 it says the wages of our sin we're, we're dead to God because of the sin and the wages of our sin but the gift of God but God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord so death moves to life because of one Jesus Christ and that is all motivated by the work and love of the Father. So us dead people are awaiting the love of God, and yet we don't even know it. God pursues us. We're dead. God pursues us, and then makes us alive by his Spirit. Continuing on, verses 6 and 7, and it says this, And God raised us up with Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show us the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in the kindness brought to us in Christ Jesus. Which basically is this. We are made alive to God 
through one single act of redemption by Jesus Christ. We're made alive by the work of another. And when Christ died, he made alive those who are dead. When Christ rose from the dead, he then brought people back from the dead. And when he sits now at the right hand of the Father, he says we will join him at sitting at the right hand of the Father because that's the position of those who are firstborn. See, that's the most amazing thing of this. Christ died for the dead ones. Christ became alive so the dead ones can become alive. But then Christ sits at the right hand of the Father and says, come and sit at this chair with me. Do you realize the beauty that is in that statement that God is taking dead ones who are in rebellion to him, who defied his authority, who chose self-gratification. He says, I am ignoring all that because of the blood of my son, Jesus Christ. I can cover those things. And now I welcome you to my right hand. I welcome you as firstborn. And then it concludes in verse seven. So then we get to anticipate seeing his incredible, incomparable riches of his grace. Receiving that which we did not earn. Amen. Let's pray. So God, I'm thankful to be able to declare in this moment that you are a God that is filled with rich, that is rich in mercy, rich in grace. And as a result, we can anticipate life, not death. I do not fear death because I know what comes after my physical death. I receive life not by my own works, but by the work of Jesus Christ alone. And then I get to anticipate the seeing the fullness of your grace when my eyes can finally behold you face to face. Thank you, God, for this moment. And may you be filled with joy as we sing out of gratefulness, praise to you and your name. Jesus, it's in your name I pray this. Amen. Would you stand, please? Come on, church, we're going to declare the incredible, the joyful hope that we have because of what he's done, that story, the gospel in our lives.
So the reality is in scripture, we're either dead to God or we're alive because of his work of Jesus Christ. So if you've never had a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, I invite you to come into that relationship and God will make you new. We have people though, it'd be in the encounter room, which is to my left in the back, they'd be glad to pray with you. Whatever it is, it's a burden upon your life. And we would love to introduce Jesus to you if that's something you've never uh, been able to experience as a relationship that will make you new and alive to God. Now to those of you who were a part of the pattern of this world, why would you ever put your grave clothes back on? Why would you ever go back? We serve a victorious king. We're known as the overcomers. We are told that in society, things will get worse upon worse. It's written in scripture. It should not surprise you. But it says, blessed are the ones who overcome. 
Those who are in the truth and know God are alive in him. And so these things don't surprise us. And we know that in the end, though, who writes the winning script? It is God himself. And he will change the narrative towards him when Jesus comes in full presence and establishes his kingdom. So we should not behave as ones who are defeated, but ones who knows where our victory truly lies. So those of you who are alive, enjoy the relationship with God because we can hear from him, we can speak to him because we're alive to him. If you're dead and you're still not hearing from him, you need to come into that relationship and experience the joy that is found in him and him alone. Amen. You're dismissed.